Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. So thank you everyone for joining us today. My name is Julia Baltz and I am working with Dialogues in Dermatology, working on our Titans in Dermatology series. I have the pleasure today of chatting with Dr. Kenny Greer. Dr. Greer is a native Virginian. He graduated from Washington and Lee as an undergraduate, after which he received his medical degree at University of Virginia. He then pursued an internal medicine residency at University of Rochester, after which he spent two years with the U.S. Navy Med Corps and then returned to the Old Dominion State for dermatology residency at UVA, where he then stayed on as faculty to this very day and served as chair between 1993 and 2008. Now, the candy career that I first met as a rotating medical student was a Harley driving doctor with the smoking liquid nitrogen Q-tip in the pocket. And I have this memory of him yelling down the hall to a colleague about giving himself Vibrio again from those homegrown oysters. So this is the candy career I want to give our audience a chance to get to know today. So I think we should start with that uh, elephant in the room. Tell us about your oysters. Well... I've loved raw oysters much of my life. And my wife and I were fortunate enough to buy a second home down near the Chesapeake Bay on a large river. And I bought it because it had hunting and it had oysters. We met our realtor and we bought it in two hours, which was crazy, but we love it. But anyway, I started raising oysters and did well. It may be as much volume as it is the fact that I don't get adequate flow in my area, but I had lot of oyster floats and I was raising a thousand oysters and I would eat them periodically and the month of July does not have an R in it the classic thing of eat your oysters raw in the months that contain R but you go to New Orleans you eat oysters every day of the year and I said I'll eat my oysters (laughs) and so I had a terrible GI upset I drove home and my wife said you've got to go to the hospital I said give me some seltzer water I'll be fine uh-uh. So I was in shock, admitted to the hospital for five days, and uh, they finally cultured the correct organism, and I've had it several times since, but I know that ciprofloxacin works better than bioxin. They think they thought it was another GI bug, and I haven't taken a cipro and then eaten a couple dozen oysters because it's volume. Sometimes I'll eat 24, 36 oysters raw at a time. So I dumped my oysters, and now I just buy them in a store. <laughs> so it didn't turn you off raw oysters, though? No. After four episodes, milder ones, I just realized that I could it, maybe just don't eat so many. There you go. <laughs> hey, you got to pay the price to enjoy. I That's get it. That's absolutely true. Now, tell us about where you grew up in Virginia. A little town of Marion, Virginia, it's Southwest Virginia, where I went to grade school and middle school. And like my brother ahead of me, 
I went away to boarding school and it was a huge decision in my life, a positive decision because I was thrown into a school with hard studying kids and I had to turn on the burners at a different level than I had to in my hometown. And then I went to WNL, but I never graduated. I don't have a college degree because I luckily got in med school after three years without a degree. So if I had flunked out of med school, I would have been a high school dropout, I guess. <laughs> Might be the only doctor we all know without a college degree. So I loved certain mentors that I had in medical school. And one of them was an internist, a really prominent gentleman who'd been to Africa a lot of times and white hair like Albert Schweitzer and so forth. But I decided I'd go into internal medicine, went up to University of Rochester and medicine, previously thinking I was doing surgery, and then had really no exposure to dermatology, but I had a lot of exposure to sick medical patients. So I had another great mentor, Paul Yu, president of American Academy of Cardiology, and he offered me a fellowship in cardiology. So Uncle Sam says, no, the Vietnam War is on and the Berry plan you failed and you're going to war. So I chose the Navy because my brother was at the Naval Academy and they shipped me to the Indian Ocean and I was on destroyer, small ship with 250 people. And I was, I was actually the physician for four destroyers, two were in the Western Pacific, which I never saw, and two were in the Indian Ocean. And we would travel apart but everybody had rashes. I had no real dermatology experience except class lectures. I've never done a rotation at all, but everybody had rashes and I had no clue. So I, when I came back to port, I drove to the University of Virginia and met a great gentleman, Dr. Cawley, and just to talk to him about dermatology, I needed to learn some. And different than today, he said, well, do you, do you want to do a residency? <laughs> and I, he said, I need to know in 72 hours. So I accepted it so excited. My internal medicine cohorts thought I jumped off the bridge. But this is my 51st year in UVA dermatology in academia, and I've loved it. But, and it turns out those rashes was really one rash. It was tinea versicolor, which was very variable. Some had some of red rash, brown rash, white rash, and I had no clue. And I said, it's a simple disease to throw you into a whole new specialty, but I made the right decision not to go back to Rochester, but to stay at UVA. And I've been here ever since. And, and mm. love it. Now, did you know you wanted to become a department chair? How did that happen? Or was it because you were at the right place for you? And yeah, I, I didn't, it was never one of my goals to mm -hmm. be chair of the department. I came up the ranks fairly quickly because they were seeing patients at a pace that was different from mine quite hyper, as Julia would know, but working with me, <laughs> and had a lot of energy. I don't have it today at age 80, but, and I had a lot of free time, so I just wrote papers like crazy, and joined committees, and did everything. Next thing you know, I'm a professor, and the chair at that time, I had got Cawley, and then Peyton Weary, both gentlemen, President of American Academy of Dermatology, very prominent nationally, and at UVA. So, an option came up. There were three of us on the search team that we'd be in search and I threw my name in the hat and I won I guess you say <laughs> 15 years and that that was enough I had an opportunity to do more but 15 years as chair was a lot so I just 
stayed on the faculty doing clinical dermatology. How did you find balance as a chair? And with you have five kids, is my understanding, and active hobbies, as we all know. How did you find that balance? Well, I must admit that I've left the house a lot to do, had my hobbies to do a little bit, but being chair and the huge thing that I've spent many years doing is this gigantic slide collection. I picked up a camera the first day of dermatology and 60,000 slides later that were digitalizing them, have a whole group digitalizing these things. And it's, we're up to 30 some thousand now to be used at UVA. You really can't spread them on the web because I don't have permission for faces and so forth for many of these. So, and I, those slides have been a gigantic part of my life, but I would come home, tell the kids hello, and I'd come up to the little office and I would sort slides and fill them in and do all of that. So my wife, my wife's wife at the time, and mm-hmm. I've been married 42 years. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I just sort of left them in the lurch to do a lot of raising of the kids. Mm-hmm. Now I've got 11 grandkids and we just had the newest one three nights in a row because my youngest daughter just had a baby this week. Wow. And, and so uh, we kept the two and a half year old. The office is a much better pace than running after a two and a half year old. So, <laughs> so I was lucky. I was lucky to be able to, to do it. And I was somewhat of a workaholic all through my life and the slide collection and developing lectures, which allowed me to go a lot of places and, and do it. I love going to residency training programs around the country and meet with friends and give talks. But it took a toll to a certain extent on some of the children. I'm sure they might say, but we all survived. Mm-hmm. Now, I think most people, when they hear your name, they do think about that slide collection. And I know it was part of it was presented at the summer AAD this year. How did you get into that photography and commit to that process? When you started your residence at UVA and you saw, say, a keratoacanthoma and you had young residents and we'd say, okay, you took seven pictures because we had six residents. It's a relatively small program. And we had one for the department and one each resident got a copy of. So cameras were big and many of the people were not interested in photography. I don't think Dr. Cawley and Dr. Weir ever took a picture. So I started going through and I started collecting them. And in the beginning, they weren't, I would call prime pictures and didn't take me long to realize that backgrounds are important, lighting is important. And in those days we were using Kodak film and you'd take a roll of film and you'd send it off and come back and say, oh gosh, seven of them are 20 didn't turn out. Now it's digital. It's totally different. So I just took a real interest in it. And I, I, I didn't think it was going to lead me what it did, but it, it is, I lecture now every two weeks. I do Kodachrome sessions tomorrow morning at seven o'clock with the residents and, and they zoom it for anybody local that wants to join at that hour. And I've done that for a long time because there are a lot of slides to go over, but I still have to prep them. But a lot of them are stories. I, I've got one part of my collection called Then and Now. Then I'd see somebody and 25 years later, I'd see them again or in the in, interim, I'd see them more than once. Wow. So those are fun slides for me. I got a little, not a little lady in the hospital. She's a big lady, but I saw it when I was 12 with necrotizing fasciitis when she was 12 years old. She's now 29 wow. and she developed it again. I haven't had not seen her in all the interim years. So. 
he called me and I, I'm the one tried to get her organized, bring her down. The surgeons operated on her another huge bout with abdominal necrotizing fasciitis. So I have pictures oh. when she's 12 and pictures when she's 30. Unbelievable. So that, and it helps, it helps to be in one place for 50 years and feel <laughs> Absolutely. I imagine you remember a large proportion of, of these patients. I mean, I, I had a mentor who said patients are the hooks upon which we hang our knowledge and you have all of their pictures. Yeah, I, I don't remember names well, but I, but I, one of their names, their names will just come. I won't tell you the name on, on dialogue. Um, <laughs> L, what's her name is. But anyway, the name comes back for these. They, they obviously imprint heavily, but I've gone over these slides so many times and categorized them and done it. So it's helped me clinically. I know for years just to go over unusual manifestations of common diseases and common manifestations and unusual diseases, but it's helped me. And I, I, I do tell the stories. I mean, I'll have stories tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've always had a career, like you said, in academics, and it seems like teaching is hugely important to you. How do you... You still obviously teach the residents a lot. How do you, your priorities of teaching versus clinical practice, what brings you joy? It, it's both. I mean, I, I developed the, the teaching through my clinical practice. But when I was chair, I took over a department that had been in the red for 15, 20 years. And the only thing the dean told me to do is, you've got to turn this department into the black. So mm -hmm. my statement was, well, team, let's start working. So I was basically, when I was chair at the last series, I was seeing patients, what we call 10 half days a week, all day, Monday through Friday. So I had a large volume, my FTE component was 1.7, but I, I couldn't handle that day. Right now, I'm semi-retired, phase retirement, I'm doing just two mornings a week, and I will have, I think tomorrow morning, I have 19, and that's, that's still a big number to squeeze them in because you, the way you do it. But the teaching is through the slides and the cases. I no longer get the referrals that the younger docs do, fortunately for me, because mm -hmm. they manage Pemphigus now entirely different than the way I did for my early life. I right. still have some, but we have some super young faculty members. One of them is the son of one of my former trainees. He's sort of mad at me. He says, I'm never going to get over you stealing my son. He's just a super, Hal Flowers is a super future academician. So yep. I give him all the blistering diseases. I've had my share. <laughs> now, I have to ask, how did you end up treating all that tinea versicolor on the boat? Didn't. I didn't have a clue what it was. <laughs> when I came to port, an old doc private practice, I said, what is all this stuff? And he said, I said man, that's tinea versicolor. And then it became relatively easily. Mm -hmm. But in the Indian Ocean, in the middle of July, mm -hmm. the temperature, and the Air conditioning on a destroyer with not A plus. Everybody was sweaty, and they're all young men. We had no women in the, on the ship at that time, and they were young people. And tinea versicolor was just very common. So it, we, once I found out what it was, but I once I, I came back to port at, in Norfolk, I was at, at the naval air station, even though I was at, on a destroyer navy. I never went back to sea, so I had opportunities to treat lots of lots of things. And I, I take them around a little bit dermatology before I made that drive up to see Dr. Pauly at mm. UVA. That was a that was a great drive. So you just had a feeling based upon that experience that this is something you should look into. I think that's so 
interesting in that so many people have a very straightforward path to medical school and residency and dermatology. And so to hear that you were truly inspired by your clinical experiences is really fascinating. I got in by the back door. There's no question about that. <laughs> and and I, I did my residency with a cohort whose father was a dermatologist. I was green as a gore, a common term I've used with some of my former trainees. Got a card recently from one of them. She says, I'm no longer green as a gore. She's outstanding. <laughs> in practices in Annapolis, Maryland, but I would use that term, but I was double green. I didn't know a thing because I was, you know, I knew Tinia Versicolor finally, but that wasn't the whole <laughs> gist of what I was seeing at, at UVA when I first did the residency. It was a challenge, but get the books. I took Rook and read it through and through more than mm-hmm. once. That was the book we used then. And, and nowadays, I don't think Rook has a, a, a text that our residents are using. And so when you stayed on as faculty, it sounds like it was a, a pretty supportive department that allowed you to grow and you wanted to stay. And I did. I mean, Ed, Ed and Peyton were prominent nationally. Ed was very quiet. Peyton was noisy like me. And I got involved on committees and at the academy. I think I, I went to my first AAD meeting in 1972 and by 1974, I was I was lecturing, and then I was running symposium, and I ran other than three years for 45 years. I was either lecturing or running symposium. So you volunteered, and once you're relatively successful, people want to keep coming back. So I did that a lot, and so I had made a lot of friends through that. But I had nice exposure, and I mean, J. Lamar Calloway, famous dermatologist at Duke, mm-hmm. and he was a good friend of Ed Crawley, and and then. I, different people, Ray Nugent in Alabama and different people. And they, I would meet them. Rudy Bear came down a couple of times, electric UVA from New York. It was lucky for me that I was able to meet gentlemen and they would provide me opportunity to become secretary of an organization, which wasn't the most fun thing <laughs> in the organization. And then I was on the American Board of Dermatology uh, for, it's a nine-year appointment and develop my closest friends in dermatology, really, other than my residents. I still write a letter every year, two letters a year to my former residents, asking for some money for various projects. Some respond, some don't, but I, it's great fun for me to be able to keep up with the former trainees. And then friends, I mean, Lee Nesbitt is the world-class guy, dear friend. I've lost a lot of them, Lauren Golitz and Lee Nesbitt. We need a lot of them. I'm 80. <laughs> I may be next. I had a lot of, of stimulus through meeting, I think I call them powerful people, just impressive, nice, good folks, and, and maybe a little bit rubbed off on me. I'd say so. I think for me, one of the jobs to dermatology was how smart and impressive people have to be within this field. And I think you really exemplify that. And like you said, powerful people that you meet and you work with. What advice do you give your residents and your younger colleagues and trainees? The first word I use to the residents, and it's the same one I used to give to medical students. We would lecture the medical students every year and I would show 20 slides of skin disease and I'd show two duck pictures because I was a hunter. And I would show 20 <laughs> more and I'd show a swan or something. I didn't. I didn't hunt swans, but it was the word observation, keep an eye open and look for the little 
nuances that we have to do if we're going to have a differential diagnosis and come up with something. And I really do think going over this, the pictures, one of the first things to recommend to them is pick up a textbook. Don't read much. Just flip every page every, and look at every disease and look at that and look at that. And you can look at the title to see what that disease is. Do that over and over in several textbooks to sort of familiarize yourself with it. And I think that's an important point. The visual component of our specialty is all you know, above and beyond. But courteous, kind, the old Boy Scout mottos to patients, patient care is huge with me to help a lot of friends as patients. And the teaching patient care, I did no research. Um, significant. I wrote a lot of papers, no earth-shaking papers, clinical cases that were I thought might be important. But those, that's, those are the major things to go in a room, see a patient, make the patient feel like that they're really important. And it doesn't always work out that way uh, but with some patients, but for the most part, it's, it, it, it helps. Absolutely. And is there anything about you that you would like our listeners to know that they don't know when they search PubMed and they don't know when they see your codas at a meeting? Well, develop an outside interest has mm. been very, very important for me. On the back wall back there, are all the duck stamps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you had, when you go duck hunting, you have to have a federal duck stamp. It's a prize, but I've collected certain things. And that's one of the things is one interest. I don't really hunt ducks anymore, but I do hunt wild turkey and deer. So I've, I've done that. Being involved with, you know, my grandkids for the most part are here. I have three in Charlotte and I'll go see them for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. but they come up here more. It's easier for them to travel than me in general, but family is vitally important now. I have one son and four daughters. The son it lives in La Jolla, California, which he loves forever and ever and ever. That's a hike for me. So family and, and put, you know, trying to juggle that and, and academic life is it's probably no different from private practice and academia. You develop your patient situation out of the slides, but also to teach others you had to go on the road, and I've loved that. Nationally, for the most part, some international has been fun, but traveling is, is way off the wall right now. We've lost, a, mm-hmm. supposed to be going to the Philippines in December to scuba dive, but my body is telling me that you probably can't get in and out of the boat anymore. <laughs> and gave up that. Was, I thought we'd be able to travel a little more, but we've been lucky. We've traveled a lot of the world. Yeah. Travel is important, but. Put it in perspective. I don't have any formula for it for everybody, but it's obviously vitally important. And and you said you you had the Harley. You're riding yeah, the Harley forever. I, I loved it with the passion. Didn't let the family know, but when I turned eighty, and I've got arthritis and all these other ailments, and I didn't tell them that I was having a hard time climbing on that big hog. I mean, it's a big one. <laughs> but I just absolutely, I wouldn't go very far. Uh, I didn't take any of the big jumps to Sturgis or anything like that, but I would mm-hmm. ride after work, go up in the Blue Ridge Parkway, gorgeous part of our state, so pretty. and ride for an hour or so and come back. But when I found myself having a hard time swinging a leg to get it on the Harley this time, 
sold, sold it back to the person I'd bought it from. It was brand new when I bought it. I only had 19,000 miles on it. So I'd gotten some, oh. I'd gotten some good luck out of it. I've got, I've got all, right now we're going, we're purging things in the house. My wife is doing the purging. And I've got boxes of Harley Davidson stuff, and beautiful jackets. Because you've got to get rid of that. But it's a hard thing to get rid of. I don't know who to give it to. So my grandchildren said they would go on eBay or something and sell them for me. But <laughs> I was, I didn't look like a Harley man, but I, I acted like I thought I was. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Greer, it's been lovely chatting with you today. I think people are going to really love hearing your perspective and again, putting a voice and a face behind all of those Kodachromes. Again, your reputation precedes you. Well, I greatly appreciate you you doing it. I, I no more feel like a Titan than anything in the world, but uh, I've been lucky being involved nicely with the Academy and the board, American Board of Dermatology and stuff. So my association with a lot of the folks is great. I just wrote Jeff Callen and I have been close friends forever, but he's he's going to be president of our organization and COVID won't let me go. I've got an underlying disease. COVID says, don't you travel. Mm-hmm. So I'm keeping in touch with them a little bit, but I, I greatly miss it. I went down to the, you know, the summer AED mm-hmm. and we put on that program or I didn't initiate it, but I was in and out of the airport and coming back home. Not what I would like to do, but I think we're sort of compelled right now. It's not just me, but I'm seeing patients regularly and, and for the most part being masked up and vaccinated and all that stuff is so vital for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> And I think we all will crave the in-person meetings again. Is that your understanding as well? Is that your feeling? Yes, yes. If I can still <laughs> waddle to them, I will definitely keep going. <laughs> I thank you for asking me to do this, Judy. It's been a lot of fun. No, oh, absolutely. Well, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Any excuse to hang out with Kenny Greer, I'll take it. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.